At tea time, we used to go to the same cafes like him. And Ringo used to get his knife and his fork, and he'd be drumming and telling our drummer, you know, what to do. Well, that was John Armitage of rock and roll band The Contrasts talking about Ringo Starr. So you might guess what this episode is about. The title is Roll the Rock Home, 70 Years of Rocking Kirklees. And today we're talking about rock and roll. You're listening to the Town Sounds Oral History Podcast. I'm Sam Hodgson, the host and producer of this show, and I'm also a local musician. So any of the music that you hear on this show, which is not credited, is likely made by me in my garage. This podcast episode is about a genre and a time I only know secondhand because it all happened before I was born. I will touch upon what was happening in the Kirklees rock and roll scene in this podcast from the 50s, 60s and 70s. Don't worry, there'll be a separate episode exploring punk and another exploring modern rock scenes, so please keep an eye out for them. A disclaimer to start with, this subject was a bit of a tricky one to unpick. Sources are hard to come by, memories have faded, and the dates when things exactly happened are disputed. Even the most trusted source on the matter, a book entitled Do You Want to Be in a Group by Roger Mallinson about the Huddersfield rock and roll scene between 1957 and 1963, begins with the following text. How was it, I asked Paul, that in 1957 we managed to persuade people to pay good money to watch us perform crap music in public when we had no visible talent, equipment or transport? After we had scratched our heads for several pints, it became clear that neither of us could remember the answer. At times, whilst I was interviewing my guests for this episode, I could not help but feel that some of the stories being told about the 60s rock and roll scene were narrated in a fashion closer to myth than truth. But then, I wasn't there, so I can't really say for sure. The 60s rock scene was a blurry time, it seems, hazy with the smoky venues that no longer exist and many of the people that are sadly no longer with us either. Further to the confusion, recorded music of this area is pretty hard to come by. For this episode, then, I needed some help. In fact, I needed quite a lot of help. Our speakers for this episode today, then, are Colin Binns, i.e. Mark Fender of Mark Fender and the Trackers, Graham and Paul Rushworth of Denny and the Witch Doctors, John Phillips of Jab Jab and Rockstar, John Armitage of The Contrasts, and Roy Noel of Bob Adams and the Limits. And to fill in some of the gaps, we'll also hear from longtime washboard player Gordon Wood, local music enthusiast and radio host Laurie Stead, and Peter Philpot, brother to Graham Philpot, who performed with 60s rock band Creed. Here's Colin Binns to start us off. It was exciting. It was exciting because all we'd had up to then was washboard, T-chest bass and skipple. It dramatically changed with the advent of, uh, of rock and roll and amplification. In this episode, then, I will work as chronologically as I can through the foggy history of Kirkley's rock and roll. Through speaking to my guests, I'll uncover what was happening at the birth of this genre. We'll hear some local music and... We're also going to hear a clip from The Beatles, recorded in Huddersfield in 1963. And as far as I'm aware, it's not been heard since. What do I do? What does he do? Well, I tell you what George does. He goes to the pictures. I go to the pictures, Reads yeah. Tolstoy. I read Tolstoy. And, um, and play records and play the banjo. Beethoven's
That music playing there is Life of a Gypsy by Jab Jab, released in 2015 but recorded circa 1975. We'll be hearing more from Jab Jab, one of the only bands of that era in Huddersfield that is still in possession of their original recordings. However, we have some history to get through before we arrive at Jab Jab, who weren't formed until 1970-ish. Three of the bands on our list today were formed in 1958. This was an exciting time. These were the primal years of UK rock and roll. When we started our group, because we never called them bands in those days, uh, when we started our group in, in 1958, we were the very first band to have anything like an electric bass guitar. I met Cliff Richard and the Drifters, as they were then, before they changed the name to The Shadows. And Jet Harris, who was the bass player in The Drifters, said, wow, we thought we were the only band to have a bass guitar. I didn't tell him, of course, that we'd taken a normal electric guitar, bought bass strings and modified it, because you couldn't buy an electric bass guitar very easily in those days, but you could buy the strings for some unaccountable reasons. So we got the strings first. It sounded okay. In hindsight, it probably didn't. However, because everything was so new and so exciting, many other people who thought about starting a group up said, wow, what a sound, we want to be like you. <laughs> <laughs> and then we decided that we really do need an amplifier because even the bass player didn't have an amplifier. So he got bass strings on an electric guitar, which we didn't have an amplifier for. And so it didn't really sound right. So we ordered this amplifier, a Burns wheel, and it took two months to arrive from wherever we'd ordered, ordered it from. And we plucked three guitars and a microphone into one amplifier. And the sound was utterly appalling. However, we played at a place above Burton's in Huddersfield. And the guy who ran it was a guy called Denny, who then formed his band Denny and the Witch Doctors, having seen us. He played congas and bongos, and when he'd heard this, the, this appalling sound that we made through this early amplifier, he said, wow, that's technology. I'm going to form a band myself. <laughs> and so I went on. And this is how the scene started in Huddersfield, and we were the first proper band. The band Colin is talking about there is Mark Fender and the Trackers. Like many bands, the lineup changed quite a bit. They had a number of musicians play with them over the years, including Dave Rocky Tyus, who is still a professional drummer, and Steve Noon, who now owns Eagle Music, which is an instrument shop in Armitage Bridge. The band went through several iterations that took them in slightly altering directions. Their final lineup was half rock and roll band, half show band. Colin says, We were never really a conventional group. So we were quite unique, I think. We used to leave Steve on stage playing Bach's 147, Jesus, Joy of Man's Desiring and Spanish guitar with a mic stuck up its flute while we went down the pub. And uh, it was a great, great time. And we never, we very rarely rehearsed. Colin talks fondly, but in a little bit of shock, as if he can't quite believe it himself, about the band's rehearsals, in that... They didn't happen. I don't think they happened. Colin doesn't remember rehearsing with the band. The band would just agree on a tune to play, decide the key, talk about it a little bit, and then just go and play it at the next gig. In the same year Mark Fender and the Trackers were formed, so was another band on the scene, Bob Adams and the Limits. 
There's a theme here with the names. Mark Fender and the Trackers, Bob Adams and the Limits, Denny and the Witch Doctors, and some others in the area include Del Barry and the Downbeats, Billy Silver and the Lawmen, Roy Lane and the Denvers, Bobby Day and the Starlights, and Phil Plant and the Planets. But the Limits came from a very different tradition. Whilst Colin and many others of the generation were performing music for the first time, inspired by the likes of Jerry Lee Lewis, Chuck Berry and Elvis, the Limits already had musical experience. They played in a steel pan band called Sunrise Melody Steel Band. They were one of the first steel pan bands to play on British television in 1958. The music in the background is Kelvin Benjamin soloing with the North Stars Steel Orchestra, another Kirklees band. But we'll have another episode about local steel pan bands later in 2023. For now, let's get back to rock and roll. So what we're hearing is one of the first rock and roll bands in Kirklees came from a steel pan tradition. A few of the members of the Sunrise Melody Steel Band moved over to Bob Adams and the Limits. Both bands were successful. Unfortunately, there doesn't seem to be any recordings of Bob Adams and the Limits. But here's Roy Noel talking about the band and all the places that they played. We played Walking Men's Club, we played cinemas, we played Royal Albert Hall twice. We, we've been all over the place. <laughs> we play music all over the place, man, seriously. We've been to France, we've been to Germany, Switzerland, Denmark. We went to the Caribbean in 66. <clears throat> and we got some heavy financial problem down there. And I had to finance most of the, the venue we're going to and so on. And we get some bad disappointment. I said, one, I'm going to break up this band, you know. I don't like what's going on because I sell my house, costing me a lot of money and things like that, so. And he says to me, you see, Roy, I feel like that too, you know. We're not getting a fair deal, you know. The manager was not giving us a fair deal. And we ram in the place. Everywhere we go, we ram it out, you know what I'm saying? And we broke up the band in the Caribbean. It was sad, it was sad. You know, I'm the first black man that actually buy <laughs> a brand new house in Huddersfield. Even the most enjoyable times in the lives of musicians are not without their difficulties. One of the difficulties that most bands don't have to endure in this day and age used to be, as Colin touched upon before, just getting hold of some instruments to play. This is Graham Rushworth. I was invited to Mike Bamford's house in Long Road Bridge. His father opened the door and said, uh, are you coming about band, lad? I said, aye. Oh, here you go upstairs into attic. Michael's up there and he'd got a, some sort of a guitar and tuned into a radiogram, which were big in those days. They had a big speaker in them. But n n not many houses could afford them. And he'd got it wired in to the amp and it was that you had to sit down on the floor playing this and never forget it. Got a cymbal together from somewhere, and then a snare drum, which was an old military snare drum. 
it wasn't a snare really, it sounded like a tom-tom and uh, some sticks from somewhere. That started it. You couldn't buy an electric guitar. Graham and his brother Paul played in a band called Denny and the Witch Doctors, who were a shocking sight. They used to perform in leopard skin jackets and wear face masks. And whilst British rock and roll was coming in part from the likes of famous lead American frontmen, there was another influence bursting from the black and white sets beaming from the living rooms. If you mentioned before, Lonnie Donegan was really the first person. And if you ask any famous guitarist, uh, well, how did you start? Uh, I've read so many biographies. Lonnie Donegan started it. I mean, we'd never seen anything like it, literally. It was completely new. Nothing to link to the past at all. But to, to do what he did, it was called skiffle. T-chest bass, he didn't have a bass guitar, or wooden T-chest, with a, a broom pole handle on it, and a bit of string attached to it, playing it like a, a double bass. And the washboard, the washing board, was something a fella be playing it with thimbles on his hands. <laughs> And that, that were the, the basis of your skiffle group. And there were lo- the runs of these popped up. Let's listen to some washboard and tea chest bass then. This is a blues song actually. One Hour Manor by Porter Granger, performed here by Huddersfield band Hokum, who in 2023 have been playing together for 30 years. And for anyone who doesn't know a lot about how to play a washboard, here is Gordon Wood, the washboard player from Hokum, explaining it for you. You know, you had thimbles on your fingers and you were imitating the drums. The whole point of a washboard was they were taken on board in the 1920s by uh, rural black musicians who couldn't afford drum kits and washboard was a substitute for the drums in those days. And you used to have cowbells and wood blocks and cymbals, and so I developed a kit, much like a drum kit. So I had a couple of cymbals, uh, occasionally a, a bass drum when, when it was needed. So the kit developed that way. It'd be a shame at this point not to play some Denny and the Witch Doctors. So here we are, a 1963 recording of one of their original songs by Alex Keenan, This is Denny and the Witch Doctors playing in France. Come on and dance, it will make you feel so good. Come on and dance, I am sure that it's the mood. Won't you come try to surf with me? How good you can really be Won't you dance, won't you dance, won't you dance, won't you dance with me This was the early 60s and most bands in Kirklees and in fact around the country were playing cover versions as opposed to their own songs. Hence the song we've just heard is one of the only recordings of Denny and the Witch Doctors that were permitted to use on this podcast. But there was at least one band on the Kirklees scene who were creating success with their own music. This is The Contrasts with I Can't Get You Out of My Mind and their frontman, John Armitage. I can get you out of my mind. No, 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 not me. I can get you out of my mind. I see your face in every place. I can get you out of my mind. 
if the Beatles can write the stuff, we can write them. And I, I worked on it and I sat in the room at the side with me acoustic guitar. And I kept working on it and I, I, wrote, I wrote a few more numbers and Bill, wrote, he was good at lyrics with Bill. It was going down very well. And, but we had a letter from George Martin asking us to send a, a few of his material down, which we did. We were the first group to play in the bars because when we got down to Patheli, Mr Johnson approached us, he said, I want you to put your violins and your cellos in the room at the side of the stage, which was a big Venetian bar. It had a revolving bar. It was huge. We said, we don't have instruments like that, you know. What do you have, he says? Guitars. Oh, he had a fit. Uh, we went down very well. The Bill John was just talking about was actually Bill Forbes who was singing lead on the vocal and the recording we've just heard. The contrasts were signed to EMI and they recorded their songs at the famous Abbey Road. Here's John again talking about his experience at the legendary recording studio. He recorded you as a group, all playing together. So he didn't separate you. And there were only a two-track machine. And I said to George, I said, where do you get your echo from? Oh, he says, we've got a long, tiled room. He says, with a mic at one end and, and, and a speaker at other. George put the piano on. I thought it were absolutely wonderful. It, no snobbery whatsoever. It made us feel so welcome, you know. Well, we bring everything together now because the most famous band that recorded at Abbey Road and the band that got George Martin famous and a band that came from Skiffle was, of course, the Beatles. And everyone has something to say about the Beatles. Here's Roy Noel again, who had a personal relationship with the band. When we met the Beatles, we ended up in the same venue, playing in the same, same place. There wasn't professional yet, you know? And I was intrigued by the band, you know. And so they was with us, you know what I'm saying? They were, they were nice guys, and they were really nice guys. Mm -hmm. In fact, when we were together, and we're chatting like me and you chatting on and going on, you would not think there was wise guys that sit down there talking with us. We were talking the same language, <laughs> and we're thinking the same things, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, and they were, they were very nice guys, yeah. We played with them twice. And here is local radio presenter and producer Laurie Stead, who met the Beatles when they came to Huddersfield. He still holds archives of interviews that took place with famous bands of that era in Huddersfield. However... I have one or two, yes. The, the, the only trouble is that in those days, you recorded on reel-to-reel. -reel. You take this small suitcase with you. And reel-to-reel deteriorate over the years and it it wears away so i've lost quite a lot of those and also in the very early days of going out interviewing hospital radio plus the individuals in it myself included had very little money so we used to record over the top of these these tapes it strikes me then that reel to reel is a bit like memory in that slowly and over time it fades away Laurie Stead, who still has a vivid and exactifying memory, has lost the hard copies of many wonderful interviews over the years in this way. Most noticeably, his interview with the Rolling Stones. He still kicks himself for that one. However, he's got interviews with Dusty Springfield, the Hollies, the Animals. A lot of it has never been heard again. 
These are completely unique, largely unheard recordings, and a wealth of content lies within them. There is some good news, then. But the one I have kept, and I've got it all, and I've transferred it to CD, is when the Beatles came to Huddersfield. Well, I'm standing at the moment outside the ABC cinema in Market Street. The time looking at the clock across the road is five minutes past 11 in the evening. Outside the ABC, there's thousands of people around. Now, Susan, why are you and everyone, why are you all here? We're all queuing to get tickets for the Beatles. It was quite a scene on the night of the Beatles' appearance. The police had obviously gone to great lengths to organise the queues in order that no one would be crushed. Crash barriers had been erected all around the theatre and down the centre of Market Street. All around were policemen and St John's ambulance men. And to add to all the excitement, the fire brigade arrived. Now, if you had been at the ABC on Friday evening, this is what you would have heard when the Beatles were on stage. When the Beatles had finished their act, we went backstage, and there they talked to Gordon Kay. Good evening, uh, Tom. Gordon. Gordon. Good evening, Tom <laughs> Gordon. Tom. How's it go? Great, thanks. Mm. Yeah, it's fine. I think it was one of the best receptions we've had. It's yeah. Terrific. Mm. Right. Of course, you've come from Liverpool. What? Uh... No, no, Huddersfield. <laughs> you've been reading the Melody Maker. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Yeah, that's right, Liverpool, yeah. Liverpool, yes, I had it yesterday. No, I like trad jazz. Uh, you don't, you told do. me you didn't. I do, I've I changed it. I've been, I've been reading this article in the TV Times and you all seem to have met each other on the tops of buses. Yeah, well, well, actually, I, I was downstairs when I first met the boys. Yeah. Because it's too high for me, isn't it? Is. Getting <laughs> up them stairs. Yeah. <laughs> Very tiring. Uh -huh. But what, what do you think of them coming in and, and then screaming? What, well, they paid they the money be... so they can scream, can't they? they? I mean, if they hadn't paid and they were screaming, it'd be a liberty, wouldn't it? <laughs> aye. <laughs> aye. Would that, Georgie? That was the Beatles there, not that it really needs stating. The interviews he has saved are tucked away in boxes in his house amongst thousands of photographs, CDs and other bits of memorabilia. So there you have it. It's not just a rumour the Beatles did come to Huddersfield. But before any of that, Huddersfield were ahead of the curve. Before the Beatles had done anything abroad, Denny and the Witch Doctors did it first. Yeah, well, just... just... Just previous to Beatles, yeah, just about, they were 60, when they had 63? 62, 63. When they had the first hit, we, we were just about 62-ish, just about thinking of going abroad in them days. Just out of blue, it came. It was not special. One of the agents we used to work for in, uh, over in Doncaster uh, just happened to ask Dennis one day, does you fancy going, going working abroad? Jumped, they jumped at it, did Dennis, and he just asked everybody, says, what do you think about going abroad? Work at American bases. So, yeah, off we went. <laughs> every, every base had clubs. They had GI clubs, which were ordinary army bloke. They had officers clubs, and they all had different entertainment in, of some sort. And that's the way and we played in GI's clubs, in basic clubs, a month at a time on each base, every night. Apart from one at the end of the month, which was they called 10 cents night, when it was the 
Monday before payday, when everything behind bar in clubs were 10 cents a drink. These days, there wouldn't really be a venue big enough for a band like the Beatles in Huddersfield proper. But 60s Kirklees was a very different place. Live music poured out of pubs and clubs, venues and theatres all around town, as Peter Philpott explains. Huddersfield were like that. You know, every pub had some on, you know. Pubs and clubs started having live bands, and working men's clubs always had live bands at the weekends all over Huddersfield. Some of the earlier clubs I remember were Johnny Marsden's, Top Ten, Catacombs, Lord Jim's, Tahiti, Golden Girl, The Bin, Johnny's Nightclub in the Bistro, also owned Rosemary Lane Bistro, Huddersfield Hotel and the Boy and Barrel Pub. The Plaza Teen Club in Longroy Bridge. Well, it were an old cinema, I think it was, anyway, unless it were something to do with church. The Moody Blues played there, Pink Floyd played there, the Kinks played there. I think every band that were coming up into top top league before they became famous played there. I remember Beatlemania hitting Huddersfield, the ABC Cinema. That was the host of the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, the Kinks, the Searchers, Dave Clark, Five, Cilla Black, Gene Pitney. I interviewed Peter Philpott in the Northern Quarter Live Music Bar in the centre of Huddersfield. It's a venue very close to my heart, and in fact I was the events manager there for five years. Peter spoke about one of the most famous live music clubs in Huddersfield at the time, still mentioned around town by many people now. Known by many for its famous folk acts, but with a strong link to rock and roll too, the Builders Club was on 2830 Wood Street, which is now home to the Northern Quarter. But the Builders Club has become legendary over the years, even mythical. Who knows what was true and what's not? It's said that the bands that played there include Thin Lizzy, Judas Priest, Medicine Head, Lindisfarne, Wishbone Ash and Mark Bolan. I've heard lots of tales about the Builders Club, many that directly contradict each other. Rumour has it that because the venue didn't have a landline, bands used to have to ring the phone box at the end of the road at a certain time of day in order to book a gig. And another rumour, more outlandish still, is that Paul Simon asked to play at the Builders Club, but the venue couldn't afford the £20 he asked for as a fee. I don't know about that. The eventual closing of the venue has even more myth and wonder around it. Sources say that the police were trying to close it for years. Marijuana smoke billowed out from the doors and 60s hippies dropped out and danced the nights away to loud rock and roll. It's told that the police eventually caught the venue out, but on a technicality. The venue was only supposed to serve beer to members and only members could play the one-armed bandit. But one stormy night in the middle of winter, or perhaps a sunny afternoon at the end of summer, an undercover policeman was served a beer without membership and then had eight rounds on the slot machine. Or was it 12 rounds? Depends who you ask. And that was that. The venue was closed, or so the story goes. What really happened? Who knows? The venue closed in 1974, by which time there was a new band on the scene. gentlemen for the past few minutes on the drums 
You have been listening to Mr. Skinhead Dick on the By 1969 or 1970, depending on who you ask, Jab Jab were on the scene. The music we're hearing now is a Jab Jab drum solo. They started as a soul band with a brass section, but after a long spurt of gigging in Italy and a change in lineup, they began to play rock. The keyboard player John Phillips was kind enough to speak to us, his black leather jacket creaking throughout the interview. So that was it. So then we, tur- we turned into a rock band, really. No, we were the high timers. And then they decided they wanted a different name. And they, they had this name, Jab Jab, you know, Jab Jab the Devil, and a bit of a voodoo thing. Singer used to have a bone through his nose, and a great drummer. It was just a great sounding band, you know. And uh, the lead singer, Joe, he just, he could just get a place going from a lot. Of, we started working with Trojan Records and supporting a lot of their acts. We had two 45 minute sets, and we played the same sets every night. And uh, they were just perfected, you know. The songs were in the right order, and and the, and the audience went bananas like they usually did. There's people dancing on the tables and. and they went ballistic. Cause it was, half of it was because the band was West Indian. You know, they'd never seen West Indian guys play that. That's Jab Jab again with Hoping to See the Sunrise. John Phillips was the keyboard player in Jab Jab and then he went on to create his own music under the name Rockstar. Around 1974, Jab Jab took another musical turn. Moving away from rock, they began performing music that was rooted in the Caribbean, soca, reggae and calypso. By this time, many of the venues had closed or changed direction. The members of local rock bands got new commitments. Families and jobs took over. New music was becoming popular. Disco, glam rock, synth pop emerged. Solo artists could now do more intricate things and charge the clubs a smaller fee than a full band. DJs were spinning floor fillers and mixing twin turntables in ways never heard before. And rock and roll in Huddersfield made way for the future. So I wanted to get an electronic drummer, move into electronic music, get electronic drums and um, New Age or whatever was going then. Because all that was coming in, you know, like orchestral maneuvers and stuff. So then I moved into like that side of music really. Still rock music, but electronic. I used to play bits on my own, you know, like bits. Uh, and I used to DJ and uh, and then play some stuff on synthesizer and vocals and stuff, you know. Futurist club, new romantic sort of thing, you know. All that was all that. People getting dressed up, hair was all up. And, and that went really well for about six months and then they went bust because the guy running it was fiddling all the money and stuff. And so it goes. Music scenes like the waves of a great ocean bulge and swell into momentum and become so huge they foam and hiss and roar. They appear so massive that it seems nothing could ever stand in their way. No force on earth could ever end the power of such a mighty mass of water. And rock and roll did this. It towered above everything that had come before it. It left genres like skiffle in the shadows as it frothed and boiled into the sky. Its chords rang in the ears of audiences hours after gigs and still years later. 
But then something happens. As the white horse lowers its head, it occurs without anyone even registering that it's happened at all. The wave, as mysteriously as it appears, becomes nothing more than a hazy memory. Either it crashes down into the shore, or peters out back into the sea, or somewhere along the way it kind of just becomes a different wave. Like a dreamed melody we wonder, did that happen? Did those years unravel the way that we think they did? Was it 1957 or 58? This episode really is such a tiny snapshot of what was happening with rock and roll in Kirklees in the 50s, 60s and 70s. I could have told this story in a thousand ways, all from different perspectives. There are many topics I haven't touched upon at all. Each person I interviewed for this podcast episode spoke for at least an hour and a half, some two or three hours. The history, whilst misty, is so vital to this town. It runs through the veins of the people that lived it, not remembering exactly what happened, but knowing very intimately that whatever did happen was amazing. It was important. It was full of life and enthusiasm and spontaneity. It was building improvised instruments, performing gigs without practicing, touring the world on a whim, forming bands with strangers, all plugging into one amp, meeting the stars, running out of money and crashing so hard on the shore that the sand is still wet. The final track I want to play for this episode is controversially perhaps not rock and roll at all. It's not rock and roll, but it definitely does have something of that in it. Over the years, rock has moved through prog and punk and psych and grunge, some of which I'll speak about in future episodes. But in some music today, you can still hear faintly, as if from a distant chord out of a bedroom window, that at its heart, it is rock and roll. So here we go, this is Sick at the Fair by Knuckle from their 2023 album, Life's a Bench, then they put your name on it. Well, thank you again for listening to another podcast in our 12-part series exploring a wide range of Kirklees music scenes. I hope you enjoyed it. If you can't quite recall something that I've said in this episode, worry not for alongside this episode on whatever platform you're listening to it on. You should be able to find the show notes, scripts, links and names that are mentioned throughout. The conversations heard in this podcast were recorded by me and Mandeep Samra over 2021 and 2022 for the Town Sounds Oral History Project. Full recordings of the conversations can be heard at the West Yorkshire Archive Service. The conversations recorded for the Oral History Project include those with people from a wide range of musical disciplines. Today you've heard about rock and roll. The next episode coming up covers South Asian music in Kirklees. Here's Ranjit Kaur to give us a little taster. We had to go underground. It wasn't deliberate. It was, it was a reaction, a response to being stopped or blocked from 
been included in other stuff. Mm. I think a lot of people would come, but then a lot of people would be praying that their parents didn't find them. But you know what? Sometimes you have to break barriers to get get things done. You've been listening to the Town Sounds Oral History Podcast. This has been episode three, Roll the Rock Home. We will be back with another episode in the very near future, so keep your eyes peeled on social media. Follow Let's Go Yorkshire and Sam H. Song on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. This was a Let's Go Yorkshire and Sam H. Song production. The host and producer was Sam Hudson. The podcast has been supported by Kirklees Council, Kirklees Year of Music 2023 and the National Lottery Heritage Fund. Town Sounds explores the musical histories of Kirklees to uncover untold stories through the voices of local people living musical lives. For more information on this podcast, please visit musicinkirklees.co.uk.